step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Uh, for those of you who have been uh, with us for a while, you know we always start with page one news. And first up here in uh, page one news, we have Ashley Gatewood, Communications and Marketing Manager at CFRE International. Welcome back, Ashley. Hi, thanks. How you doing? Ashley, we're very eager to uh, hear about uh, what's going on at CFRE as uh, everyone is uh, making their plans for year end. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great time to start thinking about what your professional goals for 2021 are going to be. And our next application deadline is January 15th, so less than two months to go. Um, this is a really popular time of year for people to tidy up their application and get them submitted. Um, if you submit your application by January 15th, you can sit for the exam in the first test window of the year, so January 15th to March 15th. So if you really want to scratch this off your to-do list early in 2021, now is a great time to get moving. That's terrific. And, uh, and as you said, uh, there's no time like the present to make this as a, a New Year's resolution, right, to uh, commit to yourself and to the profession uh, to become a CFRE designated. Yes, absolutely. And to help folks, we are debuting a new webinar on December 3rd. It's how to become a CFRE, but it's just for consultants. So the application works slightly differently if you are currently a consultant or maybe if you're currently not working and thinking about embarking on starting a consultancy. It will be a webinar tailored just to you on how to make sure your application is done right the first time. And the registration link is on the homepage of our website for anyone who wants to join us December 3rd. That's terrific. I did want to ask you, um, you know, there, there are, this is a tough time for a lot of nonprofits, and a lot of nonprofit mm -hmm. uh, organizations have uh, had to downsize and some have had to close. So what if you are a, a fundraising professional who is in between jobs? Is this still a good time, or do you have to wait until you find a new job? Well, I always say the best time to become a CFRE is before you need to become a CFRE. So, you know, if you are thinking that you're going to be on the job hunt shortly, now is definitely the time to get things in order, especially because the most leverage you always have when you're negotiating with a new employer is before you sign the employment contract, right? So 
if you are a CFRE, when you get to the offer negotiation stage, it's far better than becoming a CFRE, say, six months in, because it's, it can be a lot more difficult, right, to try to negotiate for a change to a package that you've already agreed to. Right, right. So always good to have your ducks in a row and to uh, get your application in so that you can uh, become CFRE uh, designated. Ashley Gatewood, thank you so much for the updates. We look forward to the next time you can join us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. Take care. And next up here on page one news, we have Ada Kolar, uh, who is communications and outreach manager at Candid Connection. Uh, Ada, welcome here to the nonprofit coach and uh, bring us up to uh, date on what's happening at Candid. And, and I suppose we still need to remind everybody what Candid is. Hi, Candid is a nonprofit organization. We um, we joined forces, Foundation Center and GuideStar to form Candid. And so what we say is that we get people the information they need to do good. And there's a lot of really exciting things going on at Candid right now and a bunch of exciting things coming on on the future. Um, you know, you were just talking about in terms of nonprofits and closing, and that's um, one thing that we've really kind of focused on is is looking at how many nonprofits we estimate will close in 2020. And we've gotten a lot of media coverage over it. But one thing that's happened is a lot of times media will focus on um, how many nonprofits will close. But one of the bigger stories is that we still have a really strong nonprofit sector. Um, the majority of nonprofit organizations are positioned to weather this storm. And so, you know, while there is turnover and sometimes turnover can be healthy, you know, overall we see that the nonprofit sector um, will continue and will and will get stronger. And as it does, it's one thing Candid's here for is to really help to strengthen the nonprofit sector and, you know, help it to um, become, to have more excellence. So that's one of the things that's been pretty big. You know, the last time you and I spoke, I think I mentioned that we had a coronavirus, a funding for coronavirus website. And so we still have that, um, you know, and it's gotten a lot of traffic. Um, as of today, what we found is that there's been $16.4 billion in philanthropic funding for coronavirus. So that far exceeds anything you've seen in um, recent times for other disasters and that you see, period, you know, and after George Floyd was killed, we really upped our racial equity funding tracking, and so we found that it's really interesting. Since 2011, there were $14.1 billion raised for, um, you know, philanthropic money raised for racial equity issues, and since... Um, George Floyd was killed this year, there's been $10.7 billion. So $10.7 billion of the $14.1 billion has come from this year. Um, so that's another thing that we've really kind of, um, people have kind of sought our expertise on recently. You know, and we still have the, the traditional things that you're used to seeing. So we still have the nonprofit compensation report that came out a couple months ago, or actually I think it was last month. And so, you know, it's still a huge report that gives a, um, a lot of details into compensation across all over the nonprofit sector. Um, we have a few reports that have come out this year. One was philanthropy and COVID-19 in the first half of 2020, and it really just kind of breaks down, again, philanthropy that we've seen regarding COVID-19. Um, we just had a, a report that came out um, philanthropy for a safe, healthy, and just world, and it deals with peace building across the world. Um, we have our state of disaster philanthropy report that came out actually last week. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here, a lot of different um, um, balls in the air, things like that. And, and I think that it's really helping people to get more of a grasp of candid um, of this organization and where we are right now and where we're moving in the future. 
those are terrific updates. And of course, the data and the reports that come from Candid are extremely important to the sector. Before I let you go, I do want to just ask you to update us on the GuideStar seal of transparency, uh, which we always want to mm-hmm. make sure that we're promoting here on the Nonprofit Coach. Yes. Um, we still have the seal of transparency. We actually have the 2020 that came out uh, maybe about a month or two ago. And so we you know, recommend that any nonprofits go and just share information. It's really about just um, sharing important information with the public to become more transparent, to help people see more. And I think when we last spoke, I mentioned that we now have um, – SDGs that people can include there, the UN um, Sustainable right. um, Goals. And so that's something that people can also include in their profiles. And so there's more than 77,000 nonprofits who have fields of transparency, but it's really something that helps people see, oh, this nonprofit is really transparent. They're sharing information and, you know, they're more likely to donate and and get involved with organizations that have fields of transparency. So by all means, um, people should look at that and organizations should, should share information. Well, we agree, and we certainly promote that here on The Nonprofit Coach, encourage all of our listeners uh, to seek the GuideStar seal of transparency. It certainly is one additional way to help build trust uh, with our communities by being transparent. Ada Kolar, thank you so much for joining us here on the nonprofit coach. And with Thank that, you it's so time much. Have a to find you got it to page two. Before we introduce, or before I uh, start speaking with our uh, incredible experts today, uh, we have a real treat for you. Kay Sprinkle Grace is here uh, with us, and no, you're not missing it on your calendar. Uh, Kay will still be with us uh, here on December 14th at 12 noon Eastern uh, with her annual show, which is uh, generally one of the most listened to shows uh, here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, But Kay is here with us today specifically to introduce uh, our experts uh, and our topic uh, today, uh, because Kay, I understand you're a big fan of this topic and of this book and the authors. So uh, welcome here, Kay. And before we go any further, a big congratulations from all of us here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, for being recognized by the Golden Gate Chapter of AFP for lifetime achievement. Uh, that was really quite a ceremony and well deserved. Thank you, Ted, and thank you for your um, your congratulations and for being on the program. I thought it was one of the best I've ever seen in terms of structured design flow. I was very, very proud of my AFP chapter. I'm really delighted to be here just to say a few words about this book. Um, like most consultants and nonprofit professionals, a few years ago, I had been looking for the Rosetta Stone to help me explain to others how important um, this next generation of philanthropists is. And because I work in Silicon Valley for the most part, I was very aware of their energy, their vision, their values, and how excited they were about philanthropy. And yet people would look at it and say, oh, I don't know how to access it. You know, I don't understand them. And uh, so when three years ago, uh, Michael and Sharna first published uh, Generation Impact, I was thrilled. I first met Michael, I don't know how many years ago, uh, when he was at Indiana University at the Center on Philanthropy, which is now the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And he was working with someone who I count among my closest mentors, and that was the late Robert Payton, who wrote a book called Philanthropy, which is all about how philanthropy is systemically based in values. So there were two things about this book that really struck me. The first is, and I'm sure you're like me, you kind of look for something in the book where you can do your own little test about how valid was this uh, structure, how valid was the approach, and of course one of the early interviews in the book is with Daniel Lurie. Daniel Lurie is here in San Francisco. 
He is an accomplished and visionary millennial, uh, and he created something called uh, Tipping Point. And Tipping Point I had known and, and been very involved with over the years. So the combination of reading that and, of course, remembering Michael's integrity and then reading Sharna's credentials, I thought, you know, this is it. And then the second thing I found in the book was something that was validating for me because I come from the Peyton School of Philanthropy, which is that all philanthropy is based in values. We don't give to, ask for, join, or serve any organization whose values we don't share. And what came across with clarity and with such strong statement was, in fact, there's a line, I'm probably misquoting it, Sharna and Michael, but it there is a place in it where it says, if you want to talk about with millennials about money, start by talking about their values. And this, of course, is something we've known about traditional philanthropists. So this is all by way of saying that this book, Generation Impact, how next-gen donors are revolutionizing giving, is brilliant. It is now out in a revised, very thick paperback, so don't be put off by it, because what they've done is they've given you practical advice about how to use it. And so enough from me. Welcome, Sharna and Michael, and thank you so much for doing this. I suggested to Ted that you would be good people to have on, and here you are. Thanks, Ted. Well, thank you, Kay. And I have to say, Sharna Goldsecker and Michael Moody, uh, welcome here to uh, the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, and anybody who has that kind of praise from Kay Sprinkle Grace has really got to be something, uh, because we know how important uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace is uh, to the philanthropic sector. So I am very eager uh, to uh, have you share your book uh, with our listeners today uh, for the very reasons that Kay just outlined uh, uh, to us. Uh, so a little bit about uh, both of our, our speakers, and then we're going to bring them both uh, in here. Uh, Sharna Goldsecker is today's leading expert on multi-generational and next-generation philanthropy, and as a next-gen donor herself, offers a trusted insider's perspective. She's the founder of 2164, a nonprofit practice serving next-gen and multi-generational philanthropic families. Sharna has been a leading and consistent presence in the philanthropic field for over two decades. She's the author of the book that we are talking about, uh, co-author today of the book that uh, Kay just mentioned, Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving. She's joined here today by Dr. Michael Moody, uh, who is the Frey Foundation Chair for Family Philanthropy at the Johnson Center for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State University. In his role, he works to expand both the practice and the public understanding of family philanthropy. Trained as a cultural sociologist with PhD from Princeton, Dr. Moody is co-author of books Understanding Philanthropy, Its Meaning and Mission, and of course the book that we are talking about here today, uh, Generation Impact, uh, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving. Welcome here both Sharna Goldsecker and Michael Moody. Thank you. Wonderful Thank you to be so here. much. Yeah, I want to I'll start just, with. Can I just, can I just yeah, say? Yeah, uh, go ahead, Michael. Uh, to Kay, just before we lose Kay, that I think uh, you know, I remember exactly when I met Kay because she's been a model and a, a, a kind of a, a star for me uh, ever since. Uh, and it was in 1990 uh, at a fundraising school course that I took with her and Hank Rosso in Detroit, and um, and I've been her fan ever since. Well, Kay is still here, so she may want to respond to that. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. My, my thanks for the generous introduction, and it's really a pleasure to be with you both today. Thank you. That's great, Sharna. Uh, so, uh, Sharna, I'd like to start with you, if if, if I could, right at the beginning uh, of the, the book. I, I, the book, first of all, just for our, our uh, listeners, is broken up into three sections, and I do want to uh, talk to the two of you about uh, all three sections, but you jump right in with the impact revolution. Uh, so this is this is uh, Sharna. This is not evolutionary. Uh, this is truly a revolution. Uh, so tell us first of all, right at the beginning, why is this different? What is changing uh, about philanthropy that's important for all of our listeners to know about? 
It's a great question, and we really did this research to be able to share what we've learned about Gen X and Millennials with your audience, so thanks for your interest in the subject. I mean, we had both seen anecdotally through our work in the field and then through our survey and interviews just how much the next generation is focused on impact. Michael likes to say are obsessed with impact, um, that they perceive their parents and grandparents to be more um, perhaps driven by a feeling of duty or obligation, um, perhaps a relational commitment to an organization they've been involved with for many years. But really, for the next generation, impact trumps everything. And because the next generation really um, both has unprecedented wealth at quite a young age and is inheriting an the world's largest generational transfer of wealth, right, um, which we've heard from John Havens and Paul Shervis at Boston College, right, their work on the wealth transfer, um, that close to $60 trillion would be transferred to the next generation, half of that going philanthropically, that we really need to pay attention because they are directing their resources, uh, significant resources, at a younger age than ever before, not waiting till the uh, they retire into philanthropic leisure, right? Not the sunset of their lives, but early on in their lives to make this kind of an impact. So, so, so is that the, the pivotal change here is the timing of their philanthropy and the, the emphasis on, on impact and outcomes? Is that what we need to keep in mind throughout this discussion? Is that sort of the, the, the key piece here? Definitely the, the size, the scale of their wealth that they can direct now and over, over time. So, yes, secondarily, not in, a, in addition to the scale of their wealth, but um, the early giving, right? It's not that other generations haven't been incredibly philanthropic, but if these younger generations are starting in their 20s and 30s to be philanthropic with decades ahead of them, their lifetime giving will be extraordinary. And thirdly, we've started to see that they're, again, focused on impact and willing um, as we continue to talk, you know, we can explain to you how we see this showing up, but through innovation, through all of their dedicating all of their resources to what they care about, um, they're willing to take some risks and try new things to make an impact. Um, Kay, you mentioned Daniel Laurie. Uh, he has this great quote from an interview we did with him where he says, you can't keep doing the same things and expecting different results, right? You have to try some new things. So, the scale of their wealth starting early and their willingness uh, to bring some revolutionary spirit to the philanthropic sector is what we're looking at. Michael Moody, um, we're in the, the first part of this book, uh, you and Sharna um, talk about the changing strategies for a new golden age. Um, so obviously you're, you're relating this, as Sharna just did, to a prior generation who gave in very different ways. But what are the, the, the key strategies, the takeaways uh, for our listeners, very practical um, approach to these changing strategies? Um, because I think a lot of fundraisers, you know, are not used to uh, working with younger philanthropists in quite a serious way. Yeah, I, it's uh, you know we we talk about a whole lot of them in the book, and uh, and I guess I would just start by by emphasizing what's not changing, uh, so that we can really uh, see the specifics of what is changing. And what's not changing is uh, we often talk about it as the the what and the why of philanthropy. So. The, the what in terms of the causes, uh, many people think that the next generation are just interested in a few causes and not in the rest of them, um, and that, that's very um, uh, troubling for people who are, you know, their careers are raising money uh, and supporting causes um, that they worry about with the next generation. And that's, that worry should uh, not be uh, a problem, I think, for most people because, that, you know, when we ask them this question, they, they, they still said that they're, they were still interested in education, in basic needs, in the arts and healthcare, et cetera. Um, and the other thing that's not changing is the why of philanthropy. That is the reasons why they want to get involved, which Kay sort of mentioned their focus on values and wanting to give to organizations whose missions fit with their values. They answered that why question in, uh, with us in very similar ways that older donors answered that question. What's changing is how they want to live those values and how they want to engage with organizations and the strategies they want to use on those same causes. So, that, so it's really about the how of philanthropy that's changing, and that has tremendous consequences, of course, for fundraisers. 
Um, I think we can talk a lot about how they want to engage with, uh, with organizations in different ways, go deeper uh, and, and have longer, long-term relationships and be more hands-on and those kind of things. In terms of the specific strategies, um, in that part of the book, we talk a lot about how they want to um, they want they do want to be see evidence of results and, and outcomes and give for those. Um, they are very very oriented towards learning about uh, um, you know causes and solutions from from their peers. Um, they do they do want to kind of go deeper with organizations rather than take you know those classic uh, uh, kind of strategies for for giving that we hear uh, the spray pray and walk away approach right which which is often the critic of. Of, of especially foundation, but also individual giving. They don't like the way there was one person in our that we interviewed who called it the peanut butter approach that her parents and grandparents would take, spread spread their their kind of contributions around and hope that impact will happen. The next generation really wants to find those pace, places proactively, find those places where they think they can make the most impact, where they can have, you know move that lever for change uh, on some longstanding issues in new ways, and um, and they go and they want to go all in on that on those levers for impact. I need to, before we go too much further, I need to ask both of you your perspective on probably, a, you know, sort of a tough question um, regarding this donor uh, group, this this new uh, impactful donor group. And and that is, uh, for, for our listeners, do you have to be the new shiny nickel charity to be able to draw attention from this donor base? Or can charities that have been around for a while um, who you know maybe have benefited from that prior generation can't do they still have a hope of of garnering support from this new generation? Sharna, can you take that first? Sure, I'll tell you a story to answer your question. We interviewed a next generation who served on the family foundation board uh, with his parents and grandparents and when his grandfather passed away, he received calls from two nonprofits, and one said, you know your grandfather had always been very supportive of us and we hope you'll respect his legacy and commitment and continue to support our, our nonprofit. And the second did a little bit of research and realized that he graduated from Harvard business school and um, maybe was a little bit entrepreneurial. And so brought a PowerPoint presentation uh, to add to the story. Not only had your grandfather and the foundation supported our nonprofit, but here's what, our organization did with those philanthropic dollars, and here's the difference that funding made over time. So both pulled out his heartstrings, right? There was there was both an honoring of legacy, which is something we talk about in the book, uh, honoring and appreciating the people upon whose shoulders Next Gen stand, right, and where they've come from, and the difference that their predecessors had made investing in those those age-old nonprofits. Um, but again, they're really looking at impact. How the dollars made a difference. Um, you know, so even if you if Next Gen have not had a multi-generational relationship with a nonprofit, we point to other strategies like how do you make your nonprofit seem more transparent, particularly if you're a larger institution that's been around for decades. How do you kind of pull back the curtain and not just seem like a, a black box to a, non, a Next Gen who's approaching, right? How do you kind of invite them in and show them how dollars are spent, what the issues are? Um, again, as Michael said, right, how can they see the impact? How can they maybe even be hands-on? We're not saying that it's easy for nonprofits to pivot and sort of um, cultivate relationships with more than one generation. You know, we now have five generations above the age of 21 in American society today. So it's not easy to be a nonprofit that has to cultivate relationships with multiple generations of donors. But we do think that they um, still care about poverty, basic needs, education, the issues Michael raised, yet they want to connect with the organizations. They want to see the impacts they're having. They want some transparency in that relationship. Michael uh, Moody, same, same question. Do you have to be the shiny new nickel, or, or do organizations that have been around for a while have a shot at these donors? Yeah, I think um, you know the the uh, it, it would be easier if we could just say, uh, but but sadder if we could say yes, just be a new organization and you automatically have the appeal to the next generation. That's definitely not the case. I think you know there is to be completely honest, they, you know, and frank, they there is a sort of a natural bias that they would have towards smaller organizations, as as uh, Sharna was just mentioning, um, and and they're more naturally dis- disposed to to supporting startups or or new ideas because they want that innovation that we've been talking about and they see startups or new organizations as 
trying a new, you know, mousetrap to solve the problem of, of you know, graduation rates or, or, you know, clean water or whatever the issue is. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have an interest in renew in, in connecting with existing institutions um, and uh, they just want to make sure that those existing institutions are responsive to what they want. There's a couple of examples. Um, you know, we, they, we, we, we feature a donor in the book named Jenna Siegel who talks about that she specifically goes to existing institutions, these sort of anchor institutions in community, um, and, and approaches them with new ideas. Um, and uh, and she's, you know, she's had experiences where that's not gone very well. Um, you know, where they sort of pat her on the head as the new young donor uh, that, you know, that's trying to come in and with a new idea. And they say, yeah, that's interesting. In fact, she says, the worst thing a nonprofit can ever tell me when I come to them excited about this new idea is, oh, we'll take a look at that. And then they never contact you again. She says, that's just nonprofit speak for no. They don't want to tell me as a donor no. So they just say, we'll take a look at it. And she says, I just want my ideas taken seriously by these by these institutions. I see the value in these anchor institutions and these long-standing institutions, um, and and even in large institutions, they see the value in them. They just want to be taken seriously as having a lot to contribute besides just uh, checks, and as as being uh, you know bringing new ideas and having those ideas taken seriously, even if they don't eventually become a program or a or you know some some new initiative. Um, that they're bringing, they just want their ideas taken seriously, and they want to be part of the team that's rolling up their sleeves and trying to solve the problem together. And so if a larger uh, or longstanding older institutions can find ways of engaging the next generation in those meaningful roll-up-your-sleeves uh, open kind of ways, they're, they're, they're right there with them. They see, you know, they want to be involved in that institution. So uh, I don't think there's, it's an, uh, it's an insurmountable uh, bias on their part. It's just, you got to you got to, you know, appeal to those things that they want, which is ways of being meaningfully engaged. And that's why uh, you and Sharna have written this book, A Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving, so that our listeners can learn from you uh, and they can succeed. Um, we're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, everybody hang on tight uh, because uh, Sharna and Michael are going to tell you why it's important that you've got to go all in if you're going to be successful, and we'll be right back. Does your organization have a compelling story to tell? Do you want to connect with your supporters, volunteers, and donors, but don't have the funds to launch expensive outreach campaigns? The YouTube nonprofit program can help. If I could give one piece of advice, it would be sign up for the YouTube nonprofit program. If I could give another piece of advice, it would just be to capture the story of your organization and use video to tell it because video is the most powerful medium by far. The nonprofit program helps you use YouTube as a powerful fundraising tool for your organization. In one weekend, we managed to raise enough to feed 500,000 children at school for one day. The video also gained over half a million views and had thousands of comments and tell stories that haven't been told. Because you guys, the YouTube community, started sharing these videos, there's been housing programs started and feeding programs started. Literally homeless people that were sleeping outside slept inside last night because of you guys. Over 10,000 nonprofits are already using YouTube's premium tools for nonprofits. Your organization can too. Learn more and apply at www.youtube.com nonprofits. And don't forget uh, to mark your calendars for December 14th at 12 noon Eastern when Kay Sprinkle Grace will be back for her annual show uh, here on The Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. And we are back here with Sharna Goldsecker and Dr. Michael Moody. Uh, so, um, Sharna, you first. Um, why do our listeners need to be prepared to go all in? Uh, and what does that mean? What do they need to be prepared to do if they're going to be successful with this next generation of donors? Thanks for the question. We all in here that next gen 
you know, maybe show up, maybe don't. They're having busy lives, you know, running their own organizations or raising children. And we actually heard from the next gen who we interviewed and surveyed that they may not want to spread themselves in like peanut butter, like Michael said earlier. They want to go all in. So they pick a few things that they care about, a few organizations, a few causes, and they're going to give up their time, talent, treasure, and we added a fourth T, ties to that age-old maxim. They want to focus their energy and their resources to contribute to the issues and organizations they care about by going all in with those. Um, and we can talk about each one, but, you know, we often feel like next gen are sometimes unknown or dismissed, or it's hard to really see it from their perspective. Um, but just, you know, one example of this, uh, we interviewed Victoria Rogers in our book. Um, and just so readers know, you know, we interviewed um, more than 75 donors and a uh, um, baker's dozen of them agreed to not be anonymous. So that's why we're mentioning a few of them by name, and you're welcome to read their stories and their first-person features, many of them speaking publicly for the first time in our book. Victoria talked about how her father encouraged her to volunteer um, as early as age 12 in in the Sudunkin Children's Center near the school where she went to. Um, And Victoria said there was a lot of English and math being taught to, to children, but not art. And so she started to offer art classes ended up finding her passion, um, volunteered in the world of art, interned, um, later went to work for Kickstarter, that crowdsourcing platform, helping to curate the art programs. She later joined the board of uh, Creative Time, a big public art nonprofit, as well as the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and really all of this uh, by her early 20s. And now many nonprofits think, you know, it's not worth investing and engaging in young people because they're not going to come into their contributions until later. And Victoria really made us step back and say, wait, NextGen seems to be stepping into giving of their time and their talents, their treasure earlier. Um, is, this, is Victoria an anomaly? And, and in fact, no, we looked at the data Really, 75% of the people we surveyed said that they started to volunteer before the age of 15, 90% before the age of 21, uh, 50% were giving charitably before the age of 21. So I think we often look at millennials, for example, and think of them as kids, right? But uh, many of them have been volunteering and giving of time, talent, treasure, and ties uh, for 10, 15 years by the time we interact with them. Michael, this uh, this uh, generation, besides being, uh, as you and, and Sharna have pointed out, incredibly wealthy, uh, they they want to, as Sharna just uh, uh, shared with us, they, they want to do something. They want to be actively uh, engaged. And, and, and some nonprofits are, are just not set up for that. So they're going to have to change the way that they engage with uh, with donors. How much of this is sort of group activity of, of these donors? Um, and what, what role does uh, you know, social media and other aspects of life um, weigh in on this? Um, is, is that a, a bigger part? Yeah, well, there's a couple of pieces there. Um, you know, the the again, just to be frank, there. You know, the, one of the consequences that we we talk very candidly about in the book, um, and especially in the sort of the, the pieces that we we put in there in the updated edition, they're more practical about you know tips for nonprofits and others. Uh, you know, there are some nonprofits in which they are, are going to it's going to be easier for them to adapt to the needs and and excitement and engagement uh, uh, desire of the next generation, you know, those, those organizations that naturally have sort of places where donors can plug in with their talent, um, where they can, uh, you know, where they're, so they're set up in a way that, that they can allow, you know, groups of next gen donors to come together as a peer group and engage. Um, whereas there's others that that's just not, you know, because of the nature of the work or the confidentiality issues or any number of other things, um, it's going to be harder to do that. And, and our advice for them really is, um, you know, find that way. There's not one way that the next generation wants to be in, engaged in meaningful ways by giving and giving their talent. Um, there's not there's not a, a formula that you have to follow for that. It's simply you have to do that in the way that makes most sense for your organization, and that's still going to engage the next generation. So it could be that that the way you can you know that engaging them with uh, beneficiaries or clients of the organization or those who, who use the services um, may not be possible, but they can still engage with the staff 
in a program planning process. They can still be part of a task force that tries to develop a new idea or initiative for that's a very internal thing and, uh, and doesn't break any confidentiality rules or require you to invent a new volunteer program and hire a volunteer manager if you don't have one now. Um, but it's, it's just about being, finding ways that you can bring them in um, in ways that make use of their talent and bring, brings all their assets uh, to allow them to go all in. I, and I should point out that, you know, we're talking really here in our book and our research is really about those next generation donors who have the capacity um, either now or in the future and either from their own wealth or from inherited wealth, the capacity to be major givers. And that, and there's a lot of things that are similar about the whole range of next generation folks. Um, but we're really talking about those who are going to be this cohort of incredibly important major givers over the next several decades. So that's the first thing. Second, social media, I'll just say something quickly. Um, the, you know, the, yes, this, they, they use social media more than other generations. Um, but they, but, but it's a myth to think um, that uh, next generation only wants to be involved through social media or is only going to get prefers to get their information about an organization from social media. Um, they, uh, they really want that face-to-face in-person interaction if they can, which of course has been a problem this year. Um, it's an, an added burden to the nonprofit world than what, in addition to all the other ones that's come this year. Um, they do use social media in order to spread the word among their peers and to hear the authentic experiences of their peers with an organization, and they love hearing those authentic experiences from peers. So they, they may even be more interested in the social media posts from other volunteers or other donors to the organization than the actual feed from the organization itself. Um, they really like uh, you know, to hear that from their peers. Um, so I would say social media is a clear tool that you need to engage and use well for the next generation, but it should never substitute for those meaningful hands-on in-person engagements that they really want. Sharna, uh, you and, and uh, Michael have made a very convincing case that nonprofits have to understand this next generation of donor. Um, they need to, you know, in some ways reinvent the way that they approach uh, the, the very concept of, of accepting philanthropy. And, and with that, they, they are getting the whole person. Um, you know, and that's I, I gather the, the going all in is that the donors want to go all in as well. So this is sort of a very different value proposition with these these new donors. But it turns out that they are respectful revolutionaries. Um, tell us what that means, and and this is another aspect of how we get this right. Yes, as Kay mentioned earlier, they are driven by values. Values more than valuables. So, you know, we looked at the data and saw that 89% of them said that they were influenced by their parents and 63% by their grandparents in terms of their influence to to be philanthropic. So, you know, there's like um, a ballast (laughs) to all the innovation and all the revolution in the sense that – they they're learning about this from their elders you know they are showing respect about their legacy and um even if they didn't grow up in a philanthropic home perhaps they're in the wealth themselves um, many start to construct their own philanthropic identity based on the values that they grew up with in their home right emerging uh earners emerging donors who are earners as well as inheritors are similar in that regard they're building a philanthropic identity for the first time and are very respectful of sort of where their values led them to want to be philanthropic. Um, and then I think, you know, furthermore, um, they see that there's great need in the world and how do they construct the choices? There are, I think, a million and a half nonprofits in the United States today and 10 million globally. I mean, that could be overwhelming for anyone. How do you make decisions about where to give to once you know that your values are driving you to be philanthropic? And um, we saw Next Gen say, well, I want to align my values with my giving. Right. I want to um, respect the fact that I didn't necessarily grow up in poverty, so I don't necessarily know what the issues on the ground are, but I have integrity, um, I have compassion, uh, I'm taking a learning posture, and I want to you know, partner, build relationships with the nonprofits, for example, to hear what they need so that um, I can contribute in a way that aligns with what's going to have the most impact. So, again, you know, Respectful revolutionaries in the sense that um, they're respectful of where they come from, they're leading with their values, and they're also aware when they don't know something um, about how to ask questions so they can align their values 
with their grant-making allocations. Michael, revolutionaries still, though. So do I get it wrong if I'm envisioning the next generation donor as, as you know, very entrepreneurial and perhaps wanting to go it alone or go their own way? Where does the, this notion of a multi-generational team come into that scenario, or do I just look at it wrong? No, I think it's a you know there, there's subtleties in the way we think about this that are that are real that turn out to be really important. Um, so, for example, you know we are you know just to just to take the way you were, were framing it there the you know uh, most certainly they want to be entrepreneurial. Most certainly they want to um, you know take risks, try new things, be revolutionaries in that sense. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to go go it alone, which is often something we associate with. You know, I'm going to do something different as an entrepreneur, so I'm going to go out and strike it out on my own, hang up my own shingle and try to make change that way or make a living that way. And they want to be entrepreneurial, but they very much want to do that with other people. And those other people are not are, – are, are one, their peers. They're very excited. We've already talked about – very excited about doing things with peers. And so if nonprofits and fundraisers can find ways of giving them that opportunity to meet peers like them and try to be innovative with those peers – uh, pooling their talents and their time and their treasure together, that's fantastic. They love that opportunity. They also don't want to go it alone for a second group, and that is the, uh, the older generation. You know, there's this myth there, 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 or there's this image in the field that we, we use a lot, uh, this metaphor, and that is the, the passing the baton metaphor, you know, the relay race metaphor, where you know, people say, you know, older generations, usually for good, with good reasoning and good intentions, say, you know, I've been, I've been running this race uh, myself and holding the baton for a long time, it's time for me to pass the baton on to the next generation. And, it, and the next gen just really think that's the wrong metaphor because that suggests then that the older generation fades into the background and the next generation goes off on its own. And rather, they like the metaphor of the multi-generational team, a, a team where everybody's on the field working together at the same time, both rookies, the next gen, and the veterans, those who've been involved and you know been down the rabbit holes, tried things, got some sage wisdom from, his, from experience, um, and, and they, they want to be valued, the next generation, for what they can bring to this multi-generational team, as well as what they're, the, they're valuing what the older generations bring. And so if you're a nonprofit and you're thinking about um, your, your board, building your board, think about how you can build that board in a meaningful multi-generational way. And what that means is not just create a token seat for the next gen and then not listen to them when they show up or send the, you know, or bring them in and say, okay, your job is to raise money from your other next gen folks, or your job is to, is to improve our Twitter feed. Um, but bring them in and bring more than one of them in, um, in a meaningful way as a real partner on the board or as a real partner in a donor community um, and give them opportunities to me be mentored by older uh, board members and older donors. They love those mentor programs um, because, again, mentorship programs take them seriously as the future and upright, uh, up and coming leaders of this organization. So they want they they want to be revolutionary and entrepreneurial. But part of being respectful is that they want to do that with older generations and making use of the values um, and uh, and experience and wisdom of older generations. Boy, it sure sounds, Sharna, that if that all works sort of hand in glove, that that can be a perfect opportunity uh, for a nonprofit organization. But doesn't this also set them up to be in the middle of some conflict? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, with anything meaningful in the world, there's always conflict, right? My mentor used to say a rubber band laying on the table is useless. It's not until it's stretched that it becomes useful. Right, so I think the question is how can you stretch the rubber band, um, engage people, maybe there is some resistance, but um, can you have a more productive foundation or family philanthropy or nonprofit for the matter because we've engaged multiple generations in that endeavor? So that's what we think is, at least you know, at 2164, the organization where I work, we focus on next-gen and multi-generational philanthropy, um, and that's what we've seen not only effective but meaningful. So in, in that multi-generational aspect, but also very entrepreneurial, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask this of both of you, um, what is the next generation philanthropic identity? How should we walk away from this today understanding the, the to-do uh, for, for our listeners? What is that identity? Uh, Sharna? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, just like I would imagine adolescence, right, going through a period of a developmental period to figure out how to become the adults that they are. Um, there's really a, a common metaphor in that that donors are either new donors or emerging donors, next-gen donors, they're also going through this developmental period of filling, figuring out what their philanthropic identity is. So, you know, we try to um, encourage nonprofit professionals and fundraisers and all kinds of advisors who support next-gen um, to help next-gen through a learning journey, right, to, to think about, okay, first, where have you come from? What's the legacy you're, you're honoring to be here today, but then who are you and what do you value and what do you care about and what do you want to work on in the world so that we can get at your philanthropic identity and figure out what and how you want to fund, right? So I think that um, the best thing nonprofits can do is, first of all, um, not approach the next gen like they're just the child or grandchild of their parent or grandparent, you know, who may be existing donors in the nonprofit, but that they're adults of their own who have identities of their own. Um, and secondly, to ask them what their values are, right, as Kay listed up earlier, what, who are you, what do you value separate from your families, what do you care about? And then thirdly, to help invest in their, in their journey to become the donor that they want to be. Boy, uh, Michael Moody, it sure sounds like Sharna just uh, hit on such an important point not to be missed. Um, when a nonprofit uh, fundraiser is approaching a, a donor of, of any generation, um, assuming that they're already fully baked and that they know what they want, that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, and, and it's certainly the case. I mean, I, it is true across the age and donor spectrum, but it's, uh, but it's certainly true with these next generation donors. And these next generation donors that are right now taking their learning journeys and identity very seriously. Um, you know, that, that's what, that's, that's, you know, I've, I've often said that since we published this book in 19 or in 2017, you know, that's, that's maybe what was most surprising to me was just how um, intentional and serious and eager they are to learn. Um, you know, they, you know, many of the, and this is true, not just for those who, you know, we feature people in the book with the last name Rockefeller and we, you know, we, we have, somebody in the book who's the oldest grandchild of Ted Turner, um, you know, they have huge shoes to step into um, and they, and they've known for a while that they want to, or that they're going to be expected to step into those shoes. Um, and it's not just those folks who are really taking seriously this identity journey that they're on. It's the folks who, you know, they, they've made their own money uh, and they're, and they're, you know, and they're, they're in their thirties and they realize I want to really be engaged in using this money for good and and they look around at their peers, at other people who've gone through this. Um, they look to older generations. They're they're very intentional about their own learning process. Um, and so I think you know the, again, the more that the, that that uh, if you talk about value proposition, the more that the nonprofit can be the place that helps them in that learning journey and helps them uh, develop their identity, the more they're going to to be connected with and have a long term partnership with that organization. I will say that other parts of their identity though, they, you know, they do very quickly. They, they're not, it's not as though they take student mode and stay in there forever. They very quickly start coming to you with ideas. Um, and they very quickly, you know, uh, uh, you know, want to be right there with you working on developing those ideas. And so, um, so it's not a, I wouldn't want it to make it seem like it's this sort of passive learning journey that they're going through where they just want to receive information and uh, and then and then develop that individually. They they want to be involved in this. It is a very very participatory learning journey, if you will. They want to be there uh, doing it with you. And so um, again, providing those opportunities, helping them go all in in that way, um, and being open to their ideas is really important as well. Sharna, this uh, this book is laid out so uh, interestingly to walk the reader through this journey uh, that the donors are are going uh, going through. Um, can you uh, help us understand making the most of the golden age of giving? But do it in the context, please, uh, so that our listeners can understand the appendix of this book, uh, which is filled with best practices broken down by nonprofits and fundraisers families, and advisors. So help us understand these, these resources as well. Sure. So 
Um, as you, Ted and Kay, both said, right, the book has three parts. Uh, the, the hardback had three parts to it. First, we talked about the impact revolution, the significance of that. Secondly, going all in. And thirdly, how they're respectful revolutionaries. And this new updated and expanded paperback edition added a third new content, um, which is this new piece you're pointing to now, these best practice guides. Um, as we launched the book a few years ago, we heard people say there's great research in here. We love how accessible it is to read because of all the stories we have in here from real live next gen. Um, but how do I now go back and put this into into practice? How do I you know, take action. Like, I'd love for your listeners to hang up from the call and say, like, okay, here are a couple of things I can do right now. And so we put together really explicit tips and suggestions in these three best practice guides, one for nonprofits, professionals, and fundraisers, a second from the vantage point of families who might also want to thoughtfully engage their next generations, um, and thirdly, for advisors, you know, whether they're um, – freelance consultant advisors or financial institution advisors, um, other kinds of commercial gift fund DAF advisors. So just looking at sort of all the audiences that touch the next gen, how can we translate the research and the stories that we heard into very practical suggestions? And we hope that in particular your audience will find the nonprofit fundraisers best practice guide most effective um, and then, of course, we did include a discussion guide because we heard a lot of book clubs <laughs> enjoyed reading this together. So it is thicker, this paperback edition, but it's because the back is a third new content with these best practice guides. My, Michael, so uh, so uh, share with us uh, in just a couple minutes that we have left here, um, what is the essence of the best practices for nonprofits and fundraisers to take away from today? Yeah, well, and we've been told by people uh, who know uh, books and marketing and stuff that, uh, you're, you know, my tendency as an academic especially is just to say, okay, well, I have a list of ten. Uh, here's all ten of them, and I'm going to tell you all ten of them. But uh, I'm just going to give you two of them as a, as a teaser then uh, because that's what I'm told I'm supposed to do. And we've, mm-hmm. I frankly, mentioned a lot of them already um, in, this, uh, in this conversation, you know, about engaging around values, finding ways to make yourself more transparent, being open to ideas helping them go all in, building multi-generational teams. Those are all in there uh, with examples and new data and other things to back them up. But I'll just I'll point out two of them. One is um, find that we really haven't talked as much about. One is find ways to show impact, find creative and meaningful ways to show impact. Again, back to that the primary obsession that they have, which is they want to see how their engagement, their time, talent, treasure, and ties lead to impact. That doesn't mean that they need that right, you know, uh, measurable impact within three months or they're gone. If you define impact with them and it's a great conversation to have with them is what do you what do you want to accomplish with this? What goals can we set for a year, two years? You're engaged with, with our organization, but you've got to focus on showing them the impact. they got to see it. Uh, for some of them, that's site visits. For others, that's a spreadsheet. Um, and that's where social media can also be relevant, if they, you know, and, and important if they can see videos or, or you know, evidence in social media that comes to them that says, here's an initiative that we had with great donors who contributed to it, and here's what that meant for the lives of the people we work with, or or the the outcomes that we we uh, you know focus on in our mission. And uh, so that's one of one of them that I wanted to highlight. The other one that I'll highlight is the number one. Uh, it's literally the first best practice in this in this guide, and that is don't wait. Uh, I think a lot of people, and especially small, I hear this a lot from smaller nonprofits um, and fundraisers who, you know, they've got to meet, uh, if it's not an explicit quota, then it's an implicit quota. I need to raise money this year. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, and, and, and especially when we're talking about millennials, um, it, you know, they say, well, yes, I know millennials are going to be important five, ten years from now. They're going to have a lot of money to give me five, ten years from now. But I need to focus on older donors because they're still the primary donors. And we're sensitive to that, but we want to continue to emphasize that not only are they going to be your biggest donors in five to ten years, um, but they are going to be bigger donors than any donors you've ever had if all goes well, right? That's all the indications are that they are going to bring this new golden age. And secondly, their approach is that they want to develop the relationship now, even if it's a, if it's a primarily a volunteer relationship or it's a, a smaller-term a smaller um, you know, engagement. They, the organizations that they can build those partnerships with now are the organizations 10 years from now when there are the biggest donors you ever have 
um, uh, those are going to be the organizations that they stick with and that they know inside and out and that they're very deeply committed to. So most important, if we, if we have one takeaway from today, it's that one. Don't wait to start engaging the next generation. Terrific. Dr. Michael Moody, thank you so much for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. How can my listeners reach you? Um, they we well uh, I, they can go to the uh, the Johnson Center dot uh, org page and there's information about where I work at the Johnson Center and then we have a book website uh, we really encourage people to go to called generationimpactbook.org, generationimpactbook.org, and they can find out information about the new new edition as well as bringing Charna and or me for uh, for talks and and other engagements um, and really a lot of information at that book website. Terrific. Sharna Goldsecker, how can my listeners reach you? Thanks for having us today. Really appreciate you hosting us and to all the listeners for being here today. Um, I'm at Sharna, S-H-A-R-N-A, at 2164.net, 2164.net, or as Michael said, at our generationimpactbook.org website. Thank you so much uh, for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.